Welcome to the Gottesdienst crowd, where we foster confessional integrity, liturgical preservation, and preaching that doesn't stink. We believe that the historic liturgy of the divine service is more than mere cobwebs of antiquity, but it is a true treasure of the church to be dusted off and brought down from her attic to be enjoyed. So let's get dusting. Welcome back to the Godestines crowd. This is Jason Broughton. Today we have back with us Dave Peterson. Welcome back, Dave. Thank you. We are looking at the gospel reading for the 11th Sunday after Trinity. It comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 18, verses 9 to 14. I'll read that in the English Standard Version. Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. All right, context. Is there anything in the wider context uh, that helps us here? Or or are we just looking at verse 9 and this really sets it up for us? I mean, I think it is kind of a standalone account, at least in the sense that it doesn't seem to be that strategic within chapter 18 or you know, the exact location. Mm -hmm. He seems to be talking to Pharisees. He was talking to Pharisees back in chapter 17 um, after the uh, healing of the lepers. Mm -hmm. I mean, within Luke's gospel, it certainly is very Lucan Mm -hmm. in in that uh, you you can't sort of judge a book by its cover kind of theology, (laughs) which Luke's pretty interested in. Yeah, yeah. The unexpected Um, is the good. Yeah. The person that looks, the, the, the person despised by the world is loved by God. And those who are loved by the world are actually love themselves and therefore despised by God. So, I mean, there's that. So, certainly it fits within, you know, Luke's gospel. I don't mean that, but it just it seems like verse, this can stand by itself because we're told the context. He's speaking a parable to some who trust in themselves that they were righteous and who despised others. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's the context. And by implication, it's the Pharisees. I mean, implication of the parable itself. So, okay. Any, um, translation issues overall. Well, I just noticed you just when you're reading that you used the 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 proper name. Jesus spoke this parable and I, I that's it actually, right? There that isn't in the text, but liturgically we should definitely add that. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if you're reading it from a bulletin. Does the ESV actually have the name Jesus or no, did you just doesn't. throw that in? I just I just I put it in because it started with he. And so, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So that's just a good little liturgical tip that you know. It's I think all the lectionaries do, do this. Right? Good. Yeah. Well, if you're doing your own lectionary, you might forget if you're not reading it from the CPH book. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, because we we you know we just need to make this. We ought to do that to make it clear. So I liked that you did that, but so there you go. No, I didn't have any real translation problem. What did they have for? What did you have for? Uh, be merciful. The prayer, God, be merciful to me. A sinner, yeah. So, a sinner, yeah. yeah. Okay. No, I don't have any. Did you have any? No, not not anything. I mean, I think I'd like to talk about 
the translation of that a little bit and and then even yeah the a sinner uh i mean can you make too much up that's not exactly what the greek says yeah i, I mean so the sinner word is comes from the word sin that means to miss or to, or maybe better translated to fail mm-hmm. uh and but really i mean that's kind of etymologically within the context especially of the old testament to be a sinner doesn't mean to be a person who commits sins. It means to be a person who's outside of God's fellowship, mm. right? Everybody commits sins. I mean, everybody but Jesus commits sins, right? Mm-hmm. And so God has very firmly and directly established the means of atonement or propitiation and how it is that you're restored and remain in this kingdom. So when he says he's a sinner, I mean, we could almost translate it be loose, but he's, an, he's saying I'm an unbeliever, mm. I'm I'm a Gentile. I'm outside the kingdom, right? I belong with the demons. Mm-hmm. It's it's a it's a more serious thing than just you know I'm a person that has made some mistakes. I've done some bad stuff. Yeah, I've committed some sins. Yeah, I've saw, is that what you were well, meaning? I, well, he doesn't say a sinner. He says the sinner. Right? There's the definite article. Um, oh, and so I'm just curious. I mean, some people make it out to be like. So he views himself as as a really really great sinner, the sinner. Like there's only there's only one, and mm. it's me. Um, but I wonder if there's a sense in which how easy it is for us to disconnect sin from a sinner, and by using the definite article here, he's indicating kind of what you were talking about a little bit that that. There is no such thing as sin outside of the one who is committing it, the one who <laughs> misses the mark, the one who fails to keep God's law. I'm right. the one. Uh, I'm the one that everything that is happening here at this temple is for. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I definitely like this. I this important point that sin doesn't. It's not an abstraction outside of ourselves. It mm-hmm. happens in our hearts first. And is you know, and it is actually. If you look deep into my heart, right, there's this idea that deep down I'm really good, right? <laughs> uh, well, no, uh, right. Out of the heart proceeds. So I, I don't know. Though I'm suspicious. I'd have to. I'd, I'd have to do some looking in you know Wallace's intermediate grammar, maybe other places. The definite article in Greek does not function with the same sort of definitiveness that it does in English. Oh, okay. I mean, it's often, it's just a, you know, it's, it's, it's often, it's often just, you know, a grammatical marker. Mm. Um, English uses the definite article in a, in a way that I don't think any other language does. I mean, it's so much more precise because we don't need to typically mark um, either gender or number or um, what's the word for the sorts of no- case of the noun. Yeah. But, the, you know, that, and that, that's what the definite article is often used for. And so they use it loose, more loosely than we do. When we say the sinner, you know, it's very definite. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm not sure. I mean, I, I, di- I don't disagree with what you said, but I just wonder if we had a Greek expert on here, if he would say, you can't argue that on the basis of that single the. But I don't know for sure. I do know that it's not usually as precise as that. Sure. Um so I'm not against it. I'm just responding. Yeah. But you're definitely right about, right. He doesn't say I'm a man who sinned. I mean, he does say I'm a sinner, which is a substantial, I mean, <clears throat> literally a, this is a, uh, 
this is who he is, yeah. not just things he does. Yeah. Yeah. And so that, logical. That, yeah, that really does, in mm-hmm. our modern day, smash the idea that, you know, we're not what we do. Yeah. And we should lean into that. Like, we are what yeah, we do. We are. And, and what we do exposes what we actually believe, mm-hmm. which is shameful. Um, and so there you go. Right. We, we do want to kind of separate ourselves. And yeah, I mean, there is, right, the whole love the sin, or oh, I'm sorry, <laughs> I said it backwards. Hate the sin, hate the sin, love the sinner. That's not a false idea, but it is sometimes an excuse to sort of wink at the sin, right. you know, and, and call it a virtue because I'm loving the sinner. Right. And yeah. Yeah, exactly. So you brought up then, of course, the other word there is that hilasterion, or I mean, it's not hilasterion, it's some verb form of Hilaskomai. that. Hilasterion. Hilas, yeah. Which is, it is, uh, so it's the word propitiate or cover or atone, um, but it is, it's not the normal word for mercy is kind of the point. Right. That it's not a liaison, right? Kyrie liaison, like the lepers said, but instead it's this, and and it's it's certainly invoking the mercy seat. So this is the hilasterion in Hebrews is the mercy seat, right? The Ark of the Covenant, the place where God promises to be to stand between us and the accusations of the law. Mm-hmm. And so he's using temple language in the presence of the mercy seat. And in a sense, it's it's not as much of a request as it seems at, at first as it is a demand, Right. God, be merciful to me. I mean, I, I don't mind that translation, but you know, this isn't like, would you please, if you could, might you, right? Look with me upon mercy. Mm. It's but imperative. This is who you are. It's yeah. A, it's, this is who you are. Yeah. It's imperative. Well, yeah. I mean, he is, I mean, it, it's because he's in the temple. I think, I mean, he knows what he's doing. I don't think this is sloppy language. Right. It's not the natural language. The natural language would have been a liaison. And, so, so for him to to point this out and to say, right, mercy seat me, um, is to hold God to His word, like the Syrophoenician woman, really. Yeah. So, if you're preaching this, is it necessary to go into what's happening at the temple, like what the purpose of the temple, the sacrifices Probably. daily happening there, and yeah, you know, is he there? Should we assume that he's there at one of those daily sacrifices as the priest is entering into the the, the space to to offer the blood, or maybe even this is part of his bringing a sin offering himself? Yeah, I mean, you know, it it doesn't have to be, but uh, I mean, I think that would make a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. And that he's, but he he's really uh, making use of the temple according to God's institution. Yeah. He didn't just stroll in there. I was walking by the temple. I decide, decided to come in and then, you know, was overcome with emotion and asks for mercy. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, he's theologically sophisticated. He understands what the temple is. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So if you're going to, if you're going to preach on this word, you're probably going to have to get into all that, which is great. And the people will love it. I mean, it's, mm-hmm. it's beautiful stuff and it, and it will help them understand the connection better as well. And of course, the obvious connection to the sacrament of the altar, yeah, as well as to confession and absolution. But, but again, to sort of look at this, to put to use the things that God has instituted, and to put our trust in them. So, in terms of like how the then the parable functions, it's a 
It is an abstracting. I mean, is there any, were the Pharisees actually like this? Were they, were they thinking that they uh, weren't like other people um, and always holding in contempt the others? Did they never, did, it seems like, you know, this particular Pharisee doesn't ever, doesn't recognize his own, his, his own sinfulness. Was that, was that actually the case right. or is, is Jesus like um, abstracting two kinds of people, even though it can exist in one person, this, in some ways we can end up looking at others with contempt while at the same time being yeah. the tax collector in other areas. Uh, is he abstracting that to make his point or is he actually dealing with people who are like this? I think there are some people that are like this. Yeah. I think there were definitely Pharisees like this. That being said, I mean, he explicit, Luke explicitly says it's a parable, mm-hmm. so it's figurative speech. Uh, it could be historical. I mean, this could have happened exactly as it's reported. I mean, historical things can actually convey, you know, spiritual truth mm-hmm. and and show us more. So I'm not saying it's not historical. It could be, but because he says it's a parable, we certainly are to see it as figurative, right? And mm-hmm. as recognizing um, not simply a Pharisee and a man who is repentant and receives grace, but as right programmatic of how Christianity works, mm-hmm. what the temple is for, and the kind of danger and threat that that hypocrisy and trust yeah. in oneself, right? So would issues. you? So so if you're preaching this. Would you go along the lines of what Pieper talks about? There's only two religions, um, and the yeah. Pharisee is a type of all the self-righteous, um, of every person that takes pleasure and delight in himself, in his own wonderful being, and his own wonderful doing, all that kind of thing. And the tax collector is the type of the repentant sinner, so on and so forth. And you, you're, yeah. you, those are your only two options. There's no middle ground. Yeah. Yeah. So I think, absolutely, but I think the trick in this, in preaching this, is that we know self-righteousness is bad, and in fact, it's even, right, nobody likes self-righteousness, I mean, right. amongst humans, right? We, we don't like it, I mean, we don't like it in other people. We're, all, we're always disgusted by the self-righteous, mm-hmm. right? And so the trick in this, in the preaching of this, I think, is to recognize how subtle self-righteousness can be. Mm. You know, this seems, this is pretty outwardly obvious, uh, but in fact, it probably wasn't, if this was a historical account, it probably wasn't as obvious as it seems to us. I mean, we're being told this from a divine perspective. We're allowed to see into these men's hearts, uh, which we normally can't. And even the prayer that he says is not as obnoxious as it sounds, Right. I mean, I think of, I always think of, uh, I know it was, it was Walter A. Meyer, but I think he got, it wasn't somebody else did it before him, but right, there, but for the grace of God go I. Right. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you remember that, but I remember Walter Meyer would uh, say that sort of thing, like, you know, as he steps over the homeless drunk on the street. Right. There, but for the grace of God go I. And I don't think that was insincere or hypocritical. He was saying, you know, this is, I could be there too. And thank, thank, he's thanking the grace of God that's kept him from that sort of lifestyle. Yeah. Uh, but it could easily, right, evolve into a kind of a self righteousness where the grace of God part of that is just formulaic. 
Oh. I'm not going that way because I'm actually – so, I mean, what this guy says, right, we should be thankful that we're not like other men, right? We are different. We're the sons of God. We've been baptized. Mm-hmm. And that ought to have, and it does have some real blessings in this world, in the this life, on this earth, even though we're still fallen, that there is a blessing and a goodness in not being an extortioner, unjust, an adulterer, or tax collector. Mm-hmm. And we should recognize that God has spared us those things. So, and then also when he says, I fast twice a week and give tithes of all that I possess. Um, these are not bad outward signs. Uh, it's the only reason we think they're so bad and we're right is because we know that he's self-righteous. Yeah, he's when trusting words in aren't things. Self-righteous. He's trusting in the, that's the problem. Yeah. If he was legitimately thanking God for this, mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and recognizing this as a gift and being defined by faith, it'd be utterly different. Yeah. So, so, so then I think what we have to do, go ahead. I mean, what we have to do is we have to sort of uncover how we do similar sorts of things yeah. and how we cave into self righteousness without realizing that's what it is. So, is there a distinction between self righteousness and envy? Um, yes. Okay. Uh, but does one <laughs> does one lead to the other? I mean, are we able to see that? I mean, do, are we really able to see someone else's self righteousness as clearly as we think we can? Can we? No. Right. So it seems to me that sometimes we label someone self righteous because we're envious of them. Yeah, that's right. But that but le- labeling someone self righteous is not self righteous. I mean, it's just sin. Maybe it's not. Right. <laughs> I mean, the the uh, so they're not the same thing. But I mean, you might you might make this false accusation out of envy. Okay. Or I suppose there could be some. You you think you're better than despising of someone else. I suppose you could despise them for being self righteous in your own self righteousness. But yeah, I mean, there is a distinction between being having a sorrow over someone else's good and being self-righteous, which just would mean I'm good in and of myself. Yeah. I, I, I've always seen I mean, like, all these like things how envy be- comes out often as like, well, you know, if I had what he had, I could do it too. Or, yeah. um, you know, if I had the kind of family he had, I could do it too. Or, right. you know, if I tried just a little harder, I could do it too. And there's, so there's envy there that we don't have what they have. But then also kind of like a self-righteousness in that, like, I could easily do what they do. Yes. I mean, these sins are often multifaceted yeah. and complicated. Okay. And, right. I, but, but I mean, I think there is some good in recognizing, you know, somewhat the distinction. Sure. But it's probably rare that we, you know, that we commit a single sin that isn't, you know, infected by multiple vices. Yeah, I guess what I was trying to get at is, is there a... <clears throat> is there a uh, a clue to us when we begin to feel envious that we're we're treading on that path to self righteousness. Like, is that yeah, a is that yeah, a, so. is that a, a a a way to diagnose it in ourselves, so to speak? Yeah, I mean, it's one of the ways. I, I think there is self righteousness that's not envy, though. Okay. Um, you know, so I mean, and I think it's also possible to be envious without being self righteous. I mean. Not completely, but in the sense that I think we can just be, we can just be so full of hatred that we're just sad that someone else is happy, mm. without necessarily thinking that I could do better with those gifts. Right? There, there is a kind of just shallow wickedness that just okay. 
doesn't want other people to be happy. Mm-hmm. And sometimes that might be kind of more of a jealousy where I'm, you know, I wish I had those things. Yeah. So, I mean, jealousy is in the sin of jealousy is right. Wanting something from someone that below or covetousness, whereas envy is just, you know, I hate him. I don't want him to be happy. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're, they're often all blended together, but, and then I think too, self-righteousness can be completely turned inward where it doesn't matter to me what anybody else is doing. I'm just absolutely confident in my own wisdom or my own goodness or, or whatever else. So, yeah, I guess I was starting from the perspective of often like envy has the kind of thought that he doesn't deserve that. I do. Yeah, that's right. But that, that's sort of a blending of envy and jealousy. Okay. But I mean, that's being very technical and and we don't experience, I mean, that's just sort of thought experiment stuff. Sure. It's, in reality, as you say, they're, they're kind of, I would say for, in terms of self-diagnosis, um, what we need to learn to do is to examine ourselves according to the first commandment, because yeah, okay. this is really, I mean, I, I love this language, right? Who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. I mean, this is the ultimate ide- definition of idolatry, mm-hmm. that all idolatry sort of leads back to trusting in myself in some sense. Mm-hmm. Even if I'm trusting in an idol or worshiping a false god, it's because I have determined that that's a better way to proceed, right? Apart from God's word. Mm-hmm. So, first and second commandment get just so turned in here. Yeah. Um, this guy, right? He says, he, he says, God, I thank you, right? Same thing. God, be merciful. They both address God in the same way. Mm-hmm. But, you know, who's, who's he really praying? He's not really praying. Yeah. He's just boasting. And he's completely comfortable and content in himself and, and thinks he's got it all hacked because he's got these outward signs. So, but again, like the problem isn't in our people, in us, we ourselves, we engage in these sort of activities, but we do it in a more subtle way. And I think the real trick in preaching the law on this is to help people uncover how they are self-righteous. Okay. Because they, they don't want to be self-righteous, right? I mean, that they, they know that's offensive. Mm-hmm. So what's your suggestion on that? How to help uncover that? Uh, I think what you have to do is you have to expose the fact that they think they're better drivers than other people, mm. that they get mad when somebody else on the road makes a mistake. Yeah. Um, or that they, they hold in contempt those who hold different political opinions than them, or they hold in contempt people who don't have as much education as them or who they think went to the wrong school. Yeah. Uh, the the idea that we have street smarts, I find, you know, n- not very many people will say I'm wise, but lots of people will say I have common sense or I have street smarts. And they'll often even say things like, well, he's book smart, but I'm street smart, mm. which is just crass pride and, and self-righteousness, right? Because I, I think really I know something. I know how the world works. I know how to operate. I know how to behave. I understand people, right? All this kind of stuff is very, or even things like, you know, uh, Yeah, but some of this is actually true. <laughs> well, it's true. To, it, it can be a little bit true, but our response to it isn't. Because, the, I mean, here's this great thing. This, this, is, a, this is a text about humility, and I mean, it's, it's explicit uh, at the very end, right? Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Yeah. And so 
uh, you know, this humility is, so I just listened to uh, Jock, uh, Jocko Willink's Extreme Ownership. Have okay. you, are you yeah. familiar with that? Mm-hmm. Do you have, have you read it or listened to it? Yep. Or you, you, yeah. So he says in, the, it's, a, it's a very good, very interesting book, um, fun read. The, uh, he says in there that the, the most necessary characteristic for leadership is humility. Because humility is required if you're ever going to learn anything. Yeah. And I think this is great, and I think he's right. And I think there's a kind of theological correspondence, sort of patience and humility are synonyms for faith, because you have to actually be willing to be struck down and willing to listen, right, in in order to learn. And I think we have to learn to you know, the we jump right to, well, I am smarter than other people. Well, I am a better driver. Well, I am all of these things. And yet at the same time, just to, to listen to ourselves and to recognize that even if they're, let's just, I'll just grant the premise that you're smarter than than some other people. But then the way you respond to their stupidity or their lack of, or their ignorance, to put it nicer, is is selfish. And self-righteous because, right, you revel in it and you're proud of yourself rather than responding in mercy. Hmm. Right? I mean, think about, I mean, road rage to me is the perfect example. I mean, that's so ridiculous that we, I mean, listen, none of us, none of us has ever driven perfectly. I mean, we, we all do the same stuff that makes us so mad. And then, but, but think about how inordinate the response is. So, you know, I'm driving down, you know, downtown and somebody p- cuts in front of me and I have to slam on my brakes, right? And, and my immediate response is, that guy is an idiot and he just endangered my life and blah, 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 right? All the things that go through our head. And that might all be true, but at the same time, right? Actually, we survived it because I'm here talking about it. And the amount of anger that I feel over this is way, way beyond what is appropriate, right? This was really a very minor incident that I allowed to just be ruled by my passions, at least for an instant. The anger mm-hmm. came up in me and and, and I'm just completely willing to assign all sorts of things to this guy that, that I don't even know. Yeah. And, you know, when I'm in the same situation, of course, I mean, this is the whole golden rule thing. I've, you know, I've done some dumb stuff driving, lots of them. And, you know, I, you know, I'm a little bit embarrassed when, I, when, when it happens or whatever, but I would like, of course, some sympathy, some understanding, you know, that that I'm just a human trying to drive this car or that there's other things going on in my life and circumstance, right? You know what I mean? Yeah. So it's our road rage is, is I think very illustrative of how bad we really are deep down because it comes out so fast. Uh, I think about playing hockey because we played a lot of, you know, hockey with figure skates and no equipment except a hockey stick and a puck. And we always had this rule of no lifting the puck, right? Mm Because if you lift the puck, somebody's going to get hurt but it's really hard not to do it. <laughs> and so inevitably, you know, you'd get smacked in the shin with a puck, which was against the rules. And I can just remember this vividly. I mean, getting hit in the shin with a puck is a very painful, painful experience. Thing. Yes. Very painful. And I mean, I just, the rage would fill, I can remember this so well. I would just come up swinging. It wouldn't matter how big the guy was, 
right? I was just for that instant, at least, you know, I thought I was the incredible Hulk and my anger was going to make me strong instead of, of course, making me swing like a fool and fall on my face and get hurt worse. But, but that, that just that instinctual old man is just so ready to, to jump. Mm-hmm. And anger, so you talked about self-diagnosis. Anger is such an easy emotion to indulge and to justify. Yeah. I mean, self-justify. <clears throat> okay. So you're, so when we're thinking, when you're thinking of being self-righteous, you're thinking of justifying yourself and everything that you do. So all the sins that you partake of, not that you're justified in doing them, not in terms of you're doing everything right. Right. You're, you're excusing your bad behavior. Okay. And you're despising others. You're despising the other driver. You're despising the other hockey yeah. player. You're, you know, whatever it is. Yeah. And even if, even if there is a sense in which, if, even if you're right and they're wrong, or you're more talented or more skilled or more clever or whatever, it's still, it's a, the response lacks compassion, right? It doesn't fulfill the golden rule. It's not what Jesus would do. Okay. You know, of course, we run right away to the cleansing of the temple. Oh, well, Jesus did this. Yes, he did. And there is, there is righteous anger. Uh, but, you know, our ability to be righteous in our anger, I, I don't know if it exists. I mean, it's like being, it's like being, it's like being, I mean, you're not completely, just, I don't know that we're capable and completely righteous in our anger on this side of glory. Sometimes anger is the appropriate response, uh, you know, particularly, you know, to atrocities like, you know, human trafficking and abortion, uh, you know, child abuse, abortion, these sorts of things, right? These, th- this is an appropriate response, but even then we, we definitely need to recognize that it's just, you know, it's a powder keg and yeah, with the log in our own eye, I mean, all that stuff. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm not quite with you in all this. Um, Cause this is like how, how you end up just being accepting of everything around you because you're looking at your own heart first here. I mean, are we well, not we have supposed, to look at I mean, can we be more merciful than God? Yeah, but this isn't, I'm not trying to be more merciful than God. I'm just trying to recognize, I mean, we just need to recognize that uh, to control, to that we are absolutely dependent upon the mercy of God. I mean, we want to be the tax collector in this, yeah. not the Pharisee. And we have to recognize that, in fact, we've been the Pharisee. I mean, we've we've more been the Pharisee than we've been the tax collector. We're not we're not people, and our churches aren't typically full of people that have flagrantly and horrifically publicly violated the law. Mm-hmm. Right? They haven't committed the gravest of sins. You know, they haven't betrayed their country. They haven't murdered people. They haven't sold slaves. They haven't. Right? I mean, what? You know, they haven't even committed adultery or stolen anything. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, largely, you know, we haven't, we don't have people that have done the, you know, that have been in prison, that sort of stuff. I mean, I'm not saying that there, there aren't, there isn't that reality and that we're not talking about being merciful to them also. But I mean, for the most part, you know, we're looking at people that are, look more like the Pharisee than they do the tax collector. Mm -hmm. Right. Who are we in this parable? We always want to identify with the heroes. Yeah, I get and here that. Here are the heroes, the tax collector. I get that. So, but I guess what I'm getting at is, I mean, do we have a problem with, um, in our day, do we have a problem with being too hard on flagrant sinners, or do we have no. a problem with letting them off? 
or not speaking the truth right. of God's word. I guess that's what I'm struggling with here. Is I think well, we've heard the I, th- I think we've heard the screed time and time again not to be <laughs> a Pharisee, and so what we end up doing is creating a new kind of Pharisee that yes th- that creates its own law for someone else to come in instead of actually humbling ourselves under God's law and saying this is what God has said. Does that make sense? Oh, I agree. I- yeah, I, I, I mean, I think what we do in this parable is, I think what happens is we don't conceive of ourselves as the Pharisee. We conceive of ourselves as the tax collector. And so we go home feeling good about ourselves because we said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. You know, it's like, thank God I'm not like other men. I say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And, and, uh, and we just don't recognize that I think, right. And I'm not, this isn't about, Anyway, that that's where I think that the weight of it comes. I mean, I understand what you're saying, and I'm not justifying. I mean, this guy isn't gonna, should not go and be a tax collector anymore. I mean, this text doesn't get into that, but but we know from other parts of the scripture, right? This guy needs to amend his life, pay back four times, right? Zacchaeus, mm-hmm. all that stuff, Matthew as well. Yeah. So it just seems to me that the weight of this, the burden of this, is to see ourselves as the Pharisee, which we don't want to do, and. And to recognize that, well, you could take it, okay, uh, I think also a, a danger of pharisaical behavior, exactly what you're saying. We, we become new kinds of Pharisees that are proud of not being Pharisees. Yeah, yeah. Uh, okay. And that can be- I, mean, I could that be can with be, you there. Because that <laughs> it could be a kind of pride, for sure, in sort of spiritual maturity, or at least what imagines itself to be, or in kind of, I have this grasp of the gospel- that you know, it'd be impossible for me to be a Pharisee, mm-hmm. and and a kind of reveling in sin, right? You know, tax collecting, and well, you know, the more I sin, the more God's grace abounds. Sure. I mean, people would know better than to say that, but but I think that there there is always this, right? The old man is seek it. The old man is an idolater, yeah, th- thoroughly, and he is always seeking yeah. himself, and so it's always reinventing, and the old ways. It, it's there. It's more subtle now. So how do we how do we uncover and expose this? Yeah, I, I mean, I, it seems as though so. You know, you've gone into the idolatry of this. We know from what Romans and Isaiah that you know those who worship idols become like them. You know, they have eyes but can't see, and ears that don't hear, um, feet and they can't walk, mouths and they can't speak. So I mean, in a sense here. Th- the Pharisee has has ears, but he can't hear what he's really saying. He has right. eyes, but he's not actually seeing under what God's word is pointing out in in why he needs God. Um, the tax collector does. So, would you want to abstract it a bit more to say how are you not how are you not humble under God's word? Or yeah, and and just kind of say it in that way. And it seems like, I mean, in this way, most of our people become papists, right? Well, I go to church every week. I've been baptized. Right. I've been confirmed. Um, you know, I, I know as opposed to, you know, someone else that this, you know, the sacrament is the true body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ under the bread and wine. For yeah, us I, think that, I think what we, one of the things that I think is the best diagnostic is to just say, examine your daydreams and your fantasies. You know, why is it that you don't why is it that you don't fantasize about some rich guy 
paying for your church's pipe organ and instead fantasize that you're somehow magically the rich guy <laughs> that pays for your, the pipe organ. I mean, it's we, right. We're not just we're not just wishing this stuff would be done. We want to be the actor in all of it, right? I don't know. I just want to uh, be done. The, the, <laughs> you just want to be done, or or even if you do, and then if like, no, no, I don't care. I just want I just want that. But then the other. But then the next step is, why do you think that the answer to these problems is money? Mm. <laughs> why is it? Why does it require money for the church's problems to be solved? And I'm, I'm just saying the church's problems because that's the sort of most pious sounding. But you know, right? Uh, so when you when you start thinking about your fantasies and your daydreams, not just those that are perverted right out, obviously sure. those are easy to diagnose. But I mean the the kind of fantasies that we all have, uh, and even the even the regrets that we have, right? The sort of fantasies which gets to your envy idea. You know, if I could go back in time. And do these things. Yeah. I mean, that's a kind of. Um, I think it's a kind of blasphemy, almost, in that it wants to be eternal the way that God is, and not bound by time. Mm. It wants to be other something other than a man uh, who lives in time, and right to, to be able to go back. And, and I mean, we all want to go back because our lives are all full of regret and, and sorrows that could have been avoided, or you know, and things that could have been done better. But there is a kind of vanity in that that wastes any time thinking about that, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So, you know, the fantasies of money, what money could do, because money, and that just shows what we really worship, right? We think money is actually powerful, not God. And then, and we trust in money, not God. And then this kind of wanting to, you know, well, if only I knew then what I know now, and how could that be? That, that there's, a, there's a showing in here as though, as though I'm not in the right place, right? As though God hasn't brought me to this point, as though his promises haven't been fulfilled in me, as though the future isn't assured, mm-hmm. right? So maybe I'm not holding exactly to my past sins. I believe that I'm forgiven. At the same time, I wish I could go undo some of those sins yeah. and not because I because I think they need to be forgiven, but because I need because I need the consequences or right? There's something something in these fantasies shows that we don't trust God and His Word and where He's placed us and what He's doing in us yeah. now. Whereas this guy, right, beautifully goes to the temple because that's what God has instituted, and he puts his trust there. Mm-hmm. Okay, so is that what you'd say? Like the doctrine is in this text. Uh, I mean the talk, the doctrine is like the do- so putting like doctrine and reproof together like yeah I mean I think this is this this is a text that I mean if you just read it it, it it's I mean he gives you the the thesis right that everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and that's how Jesus ends it everyone who humbles himself will be exalted so if you're just going to say I want to preach on the most straightforward obvious biblical thing possible I mean that's it mm-hmm. right so Yes, I would say that is the kind of chief or primary doctrine of this, what true humility is and what the dangers and destruction of pride are as they relate, of course, to the doctrine of justification. Okay. You could also bring in, in terms of doctrine, you know, confession absolution. You could bring in um, the whole biblical reality of atonement, propitiation, expiation, all the, all the temple stuff that is fulfilled in the person of Christ confession, absolution, prayer. I mean, he prays, right? Um, 
the 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 fact that atonement's by blood. Oh, I was going to read this this uh just a little bit on uh, uh what's I can't remember what the vowels are. Kofer, I think, or kafir in Hebrew, which is atone, which is related to this word that for this mercy seat. So this is you know I don't know who this guy was that wrote this article. I'm just going to quote you some of this uh, in the community of uh, regarding this word atonement or propitiation. In the community of Yahweh, nothing which needs expiation is to be left unexpiated. The, through cultic ordinances, Yahweh himself has provided the possibility of expiating what needs expiation. There is no such possibility for those who transgress the commands of Yahweh with evil intent and who thus cut themselves off from the community. But apart from this, within the community, the disturbed relationship between God and the community can always be restored both on a small scale and on a great, by the fulfilling, fulfillment of the laws of expiation, which Yahweh himself has given. Now, that might have sounded a little bit sort of convoluted, uh, but I think it's actually kind of brilliantly said um, that, right, even this tax collector can be restored to the community and his, his sins can be removed. Mm-hmm. Uh, but no one's sins can be removed if they've transgressed the commandments of God with evil intent and cut themselves off from the community. So it's, it's not universalism, right? Right. Uh, then he goes on, anything affected by sin or uncleanness needs expiation. It cannot stand before the holy God. The destructive reaction of God with its mortal threat is provoked against that which needs expiation and is not expiated. Expiation is effected supremely by sprinkling or marking with the blood of animals and particularly by the blood of the sin offerings. Then he goes on again later, there can be no doubt that Yahweh has provided and ordained blood as a means of atonement and that blood is suitable and effective. It is the soul or the life which is contained in it offered as a substitute. The material has shown us again and again that the life of man is threatened if expiation is not made and that it is preserved if forgiveness is secured through expiation. It is thus incontestable that the blood of animals used in expiatory rites is thought to affect the preservation of the life of man, which would otherwise be doomed. Hmm. So anyway, there's a lot of blood in that word. Yeah. Yeah. And so maybe just briefly, what's the difference between expiation and propitiation? There any oh, people in doesn't the expiation means taking away right and propitiation means covering? Yeah, yeah. I think I got that right. Yeah. So I mean, just at a at a they're not that different. No, it, they, they do both. So the hilaskomai or the the kapur, it does both. It takes away. It eliminates impediments that alienate us from God. It takes mm-hmm. away those things. That's expiation, right? And then propitiation right. is. Um, almost kind of like a result of that, the, to be caused to be favorably inclined or disposed. So once right. once there's been uh, expiation, you are propitiated with him. You're reconciled. Right. And that whole right. thing is the atonement. Right. This whole thing is, right. Yeah. Is the means by which God, right, reconciles to himself, forgives us, restores us, recreates us, mm-hmm. right, heals us. I mean, all of these are to some degree, metaphors of the gospel itself or kind of aspects and ways of speaking of the divine work of reconciling seems to me or redeeming us. Yeah. I mean, so, so when, so when this 
tax collector is asking God to hilosthete him. <laughs> um, yeah. Does he recognize, like, he knows he's asking to be changed. Like, he wants, yeah. like, he... He wants to be changed inside and out. He wants everything right. that is separating him from God to be removed. That, right. So that means so th- that indicates not only just for that time, but all, also in the future, right? So that there's a new life. So yeah, it's, and then it lasts forever. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. This is a this is a right. The forgiveness of sins is a change of status. I mean, it's not, it's, it's not. And oh, so here's the other great thing about this that really goes along with Luke again. But right, he goes home from, he goes to his house justified, down to his house justified. And nobody knows it except probably him and mm-hmm. God and the holy angels, right? There's no healing. There's no miraculous. There's no trumpets. There's no opening of heaven, right? He just says this prayer. And externally, from an objective point of view, nothing happens. You can't see any difference. You can't hear any difference. You can't, I mean, he can hopefully, right, feel a difference. I mean, he he recognizes that his, his heart is calmed, right? He has the peace that passes all understanding. Um, but, uh, but nobody else can tell. Well, they right? would with the fruits of re- repentance. Well, fruits eventually, yeah. yeah. But I mean, presumably not on the way home. I mean, he, he just walks out. And I think, I think this is one of the most consoling things about this, actually, is that, right, we go to church and we might not even, it might feel to us like nothing happened, mm-hmm. but we believe something happened, right? That yeah. God forgives sins. And yeah, no, uh, you're right. There will be fruits, there will be fruits of faith. Uh, fruits of the spirit that that will come and should be evident, right? They will know you are Christians by your love and so forth. But in this immediate moment, you know, he just he just has to go home, and he has to then also also probably figure out what he's going to do about all the terrible stuff he's done and how he's going to make recompense mm-hmm. and how he's going to bear witness to the hope now that is in him and his life's going to reflect it. And what's he going to tell his wife and his children and how's he going to drag them along yeah. now? Mm-hmm. And, and I mean, there's all sorts of things. It, 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 it's he hasn't been set on an easy path, right? Correct. Zacchaeus doesn't have an easy path, given fourfold back. Mm-hmm. And you know, sure, those people will be glad about that, but some of them will probably hold a bit of a grudge. Yeah. So yeah, I love that. I love in a way that nothing happens. <laughs> I mean, nothing visible happens. No, you know, it's just he mm-hmm. goes home justified, and the other one doesn't, and they don't look any different on the way out. Uh, but it happened. Yeah, but it happened. It's real, mm-hmm. right? I mean, it's absolutely real. And so, you know, now he has to live with the fact that he knows something happened by faith, mm-hmm. and he trusts in this word of God and the promise in the temple. Yeah. Uh, and now, but he still has to sort of go to work, you know, and he still has to face these things, and life doesn't just become easy. And other people may not believe it about him. And the Pharisee probably doesn't believe anything happened either because he didn't think any, anything needed to happen. Mm-hmm. So so he walks out or, and down to his house unjustified with his sins still on his back, and he feels great. Yeah, <laughs> He doesn't know anything's, right? Mm-hmm. He, he, because he, he, he was confident in, in himself, and he leaves confident in himself. He wasn't struck dead, right? No terrible thing happened to him there. I mean, what happens to those? What happens to those who receive the body and blood of Jesus Christ without faith? 
Yeah, they I mean, receive they, it to they their, don't know anything. Yeah. They receive it to their damnation, but they don't know it usually. Well, I mean, this guy receives, he, he, he adds sins, right? Insult to injury with this prayer in the temple by standing in the very presence of the mercy seat and being self-righteous, mm-hmm. right? He's, he's making things worse, but he just walks away like it's the same. Yeah. So what are you going to focus on? Uh, I think that. I think I'm going to focus on the, uh, I'm gonna, I think I'm going to focus on the nothing seeming to happen, but the reality that we know, we know that something did happen, and that's what faith is, to know that something happened that God promised that you can't see. Okay. Or you can't see immediately and obviously in that moment. Mm-hmm. So How about you? humbling yourself under that reality. Yeah. Taking on faith what God has instituted and putting our trust there. Mm-hmm. Uh, me, I, you know, I'm not sure yet. Um, I obviously will want to to go into what real humility is. I I just think that our folks are, or the world is completely bonkers on what humility is and what pride is, because the yeah. guy who resolutely says this is what the Lord says is seen as prideful. But the person who right. says, I, 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 I feel, I think, I, um, yeah. they're seen as being humble. And right. it, I just, I feel compelled to continually discuss what real humility is and what real pride is. Well, you could take on the word pride, right? Mm. I thank you that I'm not like other men, bigots, racists, misogynists. <laughs> right. I mean- I mean that's that is the that is the pride. I celebrate I mean, every a, June and I put out a flag. Right. I'm, <laughs> I believe love is love, right? That's and I mean that's a totally self-righteous kind of thing mm-hmm. that that is judging the word of God and Christians as being inferior in fact and you know accusing them of all sorts of horrible things. And you're right, those people they think they're being humble because they're tolerant, mm-hmm. which even though they're right. So you got all that. I mean, you could certainly, and that's certainly really kind of that. what I, what I see as the new Pharisee is tolerance. And um, so, yeah, wanting to go into like, can you be more merciful than God? Yeah. And I think the our thing people is the tax collector. Are, are, I mean, yeah, I think our right. people, they don't believe that, but they kind of do. Yeah. Well, I could, yeah, there's lots of, um, I think of the guy that was so proud because he was a Mason and, you know, he just understood at a deeper level how Masonry was not a conflict in conflict with the scripture. Unlike me who just blindly followed the rules of the Missouri Senate. Right. Right. These sorts of things that we hit all the time where people really believe themselves to be theologically sophisticated and all they're doing is justifying their own sins. Yeah. And then they look with derision upon those as though I wasn't sophisticated enough to understand the nuances of Masonry. Freemasonry and was just a blind follower of Synod. Mm-hmm. And I've hit similar things, well, lots of them, right? That's often the way that it goes. Yeah. It's always, everything is theological. People are always way more theological than they sometimes think themselves to be. Yeah. And they are very, very confident in their theology, even without any Bible passages to back them up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 
<laughs> and then, that's what kills me. And then me. they say it's not fair that you know the Bible better than they do. I know. They're like, man, I'm like, well, I can't argue. You'll just quote the Bible. I'm like, yeah, I will. <laughs> if I don't, you should throw me out of my... I mean, yes, I will quote the Bible because that's the authority. Not just you think you and God decided, you know, in your backyard how you two would work this out. Mm-hmm. And it just turns out to be accidentally contrary to his Bible. But you got to... I mean, you're, you're Joseph Smith with a direct revelation, higher authority. I mean, give me a break. Right. Right? Yes. But I, people, are, it's amazing to me the kind of confidence that they will, at least that they exude, right? They'll be like, well, I can't quote it by the Bible, but I know this. And I'm like, well, I can quote it by the Bible, so I do know. <laughs> but you're pre- being prideful in our day and age. Well, I, I'm sure I am. I mean, well, trust me, I am. <laughs> no, but for you to even <laughs> say, no this revelation. is what God says. Yeah. No, I, that's right. There does need to be, that's not actually pride. I mean, there's always, of course, pride mixed into it, but but to humble yourself and to say, this is this is what it is. Mm-hmm. I liked that. Did you read that article on the Godestine's blog about a month ago by Noah Hahn about God doesn't contradict himself? Um, I probably did. So but I- that. Yeah. He, he, he did a very nice job. He's a philosophy guy. Mm-hmm. And I posted it, but he wrote it. The... Um, Anyway, it was, uh, he, he just went through this, there's tensions, you know, we, there's tensions between certain doctrines or even to some sense attributes that we have to sort of recognize and wrestle with, but we shouldn't call those things contradictions. Mm-hmm. And I think it's, a, it's, a, it's an important point how we speak about this and how we conceive it. And often what's happening in these sorts of you know, conversations we're having where people are believe in their own opinions apart from the word yeah. of God. Often what they're doing is picking sort of one attribute of God and deciding that this is the supreme thing that trumps yeah. all others. Yeah. I mean, he's probably also operating and I can't remember for, sh- for certain, but I mean, philosophy and logic have a, a very specific definition of what a contradiction is. That's right. As opposed he, he to that, which that is contrary or, or just by impl- implication. And so like contradiction has a very specific meaning that if one is true, the other one necessarily has to be false. Or if one is false, the other one necessarily has to be true. And so contradictions right. in logic are, um, you know, if I say all men are mortal, the contradiction to that is to say some men are not mortal. Right. Um, and yeah, he he acknowledges yeah. that up front. Okay, but I think it I think That's it's helpful. it's 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 helpful because we 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 do want to be precise in our language mm-hmm. and not give this idea that uh, we throw this thing. Well, anyway, read the article. It's worth your. It's worth five <laughs> minutes. <laughs> That's right. All right. Uh, anything that we didn't get to on the list, like. Uh, Doctrines, training well, we in righteousness. False humility, correction, I would say, right? We need to, we probably should deal, you could deal, definitely deal with the idea what false humility is, mm-hmm. right? Because false humility is just pride in humility's clothing. And it's a vain we pull glory. a lot of that. It's a vain glory. Yeah. Um, yeah. Is there, is there any sense uh, like with, with um, pride that there's, a, you're trying to provoke envy in people? Oh, that, I mean, I think that, sure, there's a certain sense in which that happens. Um, yeah, wanting to rub people's noses in it or want mm-hmm. to, or wanting to be, a, if, if not envy, I don't know if you, I don't know if anybody ever wants to provoke exactly envy, 
technically, mm-hmm. but but we certainly want to provoke admiration and worship. Yeah. Okay. Um, um, so what's the, um, if that's the correction, what's the corresponding training in righteousness? Well, true humility. Okay. Um, right. True humility, which is also closely tied to patience and faith mm-hmm. um, and hope. I mean, all of all the virtues, of course, like the vices go together and are somewhat interdependent. But I think, yeah, the, you know, ultimately, the what's the answer to idolatry is the true worship of God mm-hmm. and to actually trust in Him and yeah. just to actually trust in Him. <laughs> Easier said than done, but I mean, right? If we, if we just trusted in God, really, <laughs> everything like, really falls into place. Like Jocko, so what you do then <laughs> is you just you just do it. <laughs> <laughs> That's not bad advice. No, I know it's hilarious. <laughs> I I always crack up because he's got this part on like people ask him, "How do you get up so early?" And he's like, "Well, here's what I do: I set my alarm for really early, and then when it goes off, I get up." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I heard him talk about that. That might have been that book, the first, the first battle of the day. Yeah, it's the first battle right. of the day. It is getting up. It's the first battle of the day. Yeah, you didn't give into the flesh. You weren't ruled by your passions. You took control of your life, mm-hmm. and that you go from victory to victory, or you go from he says in there you go or you go from defeat to defeat. Yeah. So if you don't get up, you feel you, you, there, there's a there's a sort of a pangs of conscience that you know you failed the first battle. Yeah. And then that just builds. Mm-hmm. Or the other way. Hey, I got up. Yeah. Well, I definitely and noticed that I'm, when I when I um, don't get up, I I really feel like I'm running uphill. But if I get up, I feel yeah. like, hey, I got a nice nice little jog going here. Yeah. Yeah. I'm in control of my own life. I mean that I don't mean that in an idolatrous way, but right, I'm. I, I'm you I'm have some agency where God gives it. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 I can get up. Yeah. I have the I have the freedom to make that choice. Mm-hmm. And yeah. All right. All right. Well, thanks for your time, Dave. We'll uh, we'll chat soon for Trinity Twelve, and talk to you later. All right. Thanks, Jason. 